This week, we're going to talk about renal and genital urinary disorders. We're going to talk about the normal pathophysiology of the kidney, the pathophysiology of the kidney disorders, presentation, diagnostic criteria, and treatment plan. All right, let's get this module started. Kidney pathophysiology. We know that the primary unit of the kidney is the nephron. With about 1 million nephrons per kidney comprised, each nephron is composed of, one, of, of a glomerulus and a tubule. For fetal development, the kidney only receives about less than 10% of cardiac output. When the kidney is a bit more mature, it receives about 20% of the cardiac output. Renal blood flow arises from the aorta into the renal artery all the way down into the afferent arterioles, across the glomerulus, through the efferent arterioles, back through the renal vein, into the inferior vena cava. It's auto-regulated by the, by the range of the mean arterial pressure. For developmental changes, we know that in the first two weeks of life, renal blood flow uh, is doubled, and it's tripled by one year. By the time a child reaches preschool age, they have adult, um, adult levels of renal blood flow. The ureter is a, is a tube that transports urine from the kidney to the bladder. It's comprised of smooth muscle, has a peristalsis motion, and can be very uncomfortable if irritated. The bladder is a collecting reservoir that's muscular and can dilate. We know that if, it's, um, if there's stasis in, in the bladder, it can lead to an infection. And the normal adult bladder can hold about 500 mLs. And we know that some of us can hold more than others. The GFR, or glomerular filtration rate, is determined by both hydrostatic and oncotic pressure. Your hydrostatic pressure is the amount of uh, pressure of water that's applied to the glomerulus that allows for an outflow of filtrates into the tubules. So for example, your blood pressure plays a role in that hydrostatic pressure. The oncotic pressure is, is, is a pressure <clears throat> applied by, by different non-filterable proteins um, that allows for solutes to move across uh, the membrane. The podocyte is a foot process that allows for filtration, um, so it allows for passage of fluid um, through um, the glomerulus. And again, uh, when you have these uh, positive positively or negatively charged particles or, or larger uh, proteins or larger molecules, it allows for fluids to pass freely across. The, to understand the glomerular filtration rate better at the bedside, we use a formula known as the EGFR, or the bedside um, uh, glomerular, uh, glomerular filtration rate. Um, in pediatrics, we use a modified method of the Schwartz formula, and that is taking a constant, multiplying it by the patient's height in centimeters, and dividing that by the patient's uh, serum creatinine. So for neonates, that constant uh, can be 0.33, or a preemies. Uh, in children and infants, it could be 0.45. Uh, older children, it could be 0.55. And for adolescent females, and for the adolescent adult, to um, could be 0.7. Um, for your older patients, it, those, the formula could be slightly different. And they also take into account uh, patients' uh, ethnic background as well. So let's take a look at a toddler who's admitted to the floor who needs to have an order for vancomycin. The patient weighs 78 centimeters and weighs 10 kilos. What do you need to safely prescribe this medication? Well, aside from a trough of the vancomycin to know what levels you're at, you also need to take a look 
at the patient's um, EGFR. So here we have the BMP, which gives us the uh, creatinine. We know the patient's height. And if you don't have the patient's height, it should be in your electronic health record, or you can measure the patient. And if we take the formula, 0.55 times the height uh, in 78 centimeters, divide that by 0.6 for the serum creatinine, you get 54 milliliters per minute um, per the, for the body surface, body surface area of 1.73 meters squared. Now, let's take a, a look at what does this number actually mean. Well, if I were prescribing this medication and I calculated the EGFR, the first thing I would do is look up to see if this is an appropriate um, uh, e, uh, GFR for me to prescribe the normal dosing. If not, it'll tell me that if my patient has renal insufficiency or a decreased EGFR, then I can go ahead and, and renally dose the medication. So I would work with the pharmacist to determine what, what um, would be the best method to prescribe this. So should I prescribe this Q6 hours, Q8 hours, Q12, in some cases Q18 or Q24 to allow for some of that, to allow the medication to be filtered and still maintain a good uh, trough for the medication to work. So it's very important to understand and utilize your EGFR at the bedside. Now with tubular function, it, we're gonna allow for excretion or reabsorption of solutes. And the solutes that we'll talk about mostly are sodium, phosphate, potassium, urea, and bicarbon water. So in the proximal tubule, most of your reabsorption occurs here. About 70% of your sodium is reabsorbed and all of your glucose and amino acid, acids are completely reabsorbed. The loop of Henle is responsible for urine concentration and dilution, um, and this is done via oncotic pressure. The descending tubule is permeable to water, but impermeable to sodium, and the ascending reabsorbs sodium, sodium but is impermeable to water. The distal tubule will again reabsorb more of that sodium chloride, uh, and the proximal segment is impermeable to water. And then the collecting ducts, we have um, aldosterone that will that will <clears throat> increase sodium reuptake um, to help um, uh, regulate the blood pressure some. Also, antidiuretic hormone enhances the uh, water reabsorption as well. When we look at reabsorption for sodium, about 99% of it is filtered um, and reabsorbed. Uh, it's regulated by volume status and hormonal regulation, which we'll talk about here shortly. And then your potassium is freely filtered by the glomerulus. It's reabsorbed in the proximal tubules, and it's secreted in the distal tubules, and it's also influenced by aldosterone hormonal regulation. Your phosphate um, is regulated by your parathyroid, so that allows for uh, reabsorption so that it could be uh, utilized in the, the, for bone production as well as in other body processes. 90% of it's filtered by the tubules, and it's freely filtered by the glomerulus. Urea is filtered by the glomerulus, and it's also an indication of hydration and protein intake. Your bicarb is freely filtered by the glomerulus. Its reabsorption is complete in the proximal tubule. If it's wasted, then we'll develop a condition called renotubular acidosis, which we'll talk about in another lecture. Water, about 180 liters per day is filtered by the glomeruli, which I feel is a pretty impressive number. It's, re it's reabsorbed in all segments except for the ascending tubule. Now again, when we're looking at renal function, one of the things we also want to look at is our fractional excretion of sodium. And this will tell us if we have a pre-renal problem, so is, there is the patient dehydrated, and that's why their renal function isn't so great, or they don't have enough, um, they're not 
euvolemic or they don't have enough volume to help with renal clearance? Or is it an intrinsic problem? Is this, you know, acute kidney injury? Is this ATN? Is this, or excuse me, is this acute kidney injury? Is this end-stage renal disease? Or are there other disease processes that are causing an intrinsic problem? When we start to have a, 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 a fena that's pretty elevated, we start thinking about acute tubular necrosis or even higher levels, we look at obstructive issues um, that could be ob obstruction that could be a problem. Um, we, I put on here FE urea because you can check that excretion formula through your sodium or the urea, but if you have someone that's on um, diuretic therapy, such as Lasix, especially your loop diuretics, your fena is not going to be accurate. So that's when you'll have to switch over to check your FE urea. So understanding both these formulas is going to be very helpful. Now let's look at renal hormone uh, regulation. So the first one we'll talk about is erythropoietin. So erythropoietin um, is secreted by the kidneys to allow uh, stimulation of the bone marrow to increase your red blood cell production. So when the body recognizes or the kidneys recognize that there's an imbalance um, between the normal blood oxygen levels, then it's going to go ahead and do that stimulation. It'll then trigger stimulation within the bone marrow, and then red blood cells will be produced. Now, we could also give um, synthetic um, uh, medications to help with the stimulation as well. So Epigen or Procrit, Arnest are all medications designed to help, um, help with that um, red blood cell production or, or development. Calcitriol is the active form of vitamin D. Um, so vitamin D has three major functions. It enhances the absorption of calcium and phosphate from the small intestine. It um, inhibits uh, parathyroid hormone synthesis and secretion, and it helps with mineralization of the bone matrix. So the kidneys help regulate that, and I have a nice little diagram here that describes how that works. And the last renal hormone I want to talk about is renin, which is responsible for blood pressure regulation. Uh, it's a catalyst in the first step of activation of the pathway from angiotensinogen that converts to angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2, which helps with regulation of the blood pressure. So here we have a nice little diagram where the, um, there's, a, there's a, an identified decrease in blood pressure. Um, so then renin is secreted. It is then traveled to the liver. The liver converts it to angiotensinogen which then it travels to the lungs, which it converts to angiotensin 1. The lungs convert that to angiotensin 2. And then aldosterone is applied to the mix to help with sodium reabsorption and water reabsorption. Um, and then the blood pressure increases with vasoconstriction of the, um, of the, of the arteries. Um, so that's, and that's how all this kind of um, uh, works into play. Again, here's another nice little diagram on how that um, whole cascade works. So from renin applied angiotensinogens, then converted to angiotensin 1. It's then converted to angiotensin 2. And you can see the markers here where your, your angiotensin converting enzymes and uh, your ACE inhibitors um, interact. And then if you have an angiotensin, uh, an ARB, which would be an angiotensin receptor blocker, that's where they occur here between your angiotensin 2 and aldosterone. And then your aldactone, which is your spiralactone, which will help will directly impact the aldosterone um, inhib inhibition to allow for those type of diuretics to work.